Good morning. Had to clear the stage a little bit. I don't know how wild and flailing I might become today. It's been a while. It's good to see everybody this morning. Uh, sermon this morning is going to be a little bit different. Um, it just kind of came in a stream of consciousness, really, where it, it ended up just kind of being a story, uh, a testimony about God's graciousness um, in, in me and my family's life and kind of a journey that, that I've been on that's, that's coincided with uh, the journey of this church, Todd and my journey together. Um, several things have converged. Uh, the ministries that this church is currently involved in, whether you know it or not, uh, some things behind the scenes that I hope to make you aware of today. And uh, so it's kind of been a big work of God in my life personally. So there'll be personal testimony kind of wrapped throughout a little bit, but we will be certainly uh, looking at scriptures, um, trying to stay within time today. So I'm going to be moving swift and quickly. You'll notice it's the full order of service, so it's a big test case here. Well, two years ago, I began this journey, and it's come to change the warp and woof of my very faith. It's uh, challenged me in the dark, selfish corners uh, of my heart, uh, and it's come to encompass this, this concept, not only my life, but my family, my ministry, uh, even so much as to penetrate uh, uh, current idols such as time and money. Well, it begins as, if, as of all great works of redemption with Doug McAlpine. Uh, and, and, and he had been, the Lord through Doug McAlpine had been, uh, he was sharing, this was two years ago almost now, about the largest migration of foreigners in the history of the world. International students from every corner of the globe and in concentration from some of the most unreached countries of the world were coming to the U.S. by the millions and still are today increasing exponentially every year, by the way. And they're foreigners indeed. They're leaving behind family, friends, and every semblance of familiarity that they have. And they're coming often from very highly communal societies where they have large networks of friends, families, and communities to the most isolated, the most individualistic community that the world has ever seen. Needy, lonely, lost, and desperate for community. They also happen to be amidst the most influential time in their lives. The time in a person's life when they question the values and the beliefs of their family and communities and come to take on their own personal values and beliefs. I came to hear of this and saw that it was one of these unique times in the history of the world when God was doing a monumental movement of redemption. And it really, it captivated mine and my wife's hopes. It captivated our imagination of what it could be like to, to labor with the Lord at such a special time in the history of the world. 
Well, I read from time to time, and uh, I was reading a book at the time called Reading Scripture Through Western Eyes, Removing Cultural Blinders to Better Understand Scripture. And I came upon the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You guys are familiar with it. I'm not going to cover it, really. Um, and did you know I came to find something out that I didn't know, you know? Uh, us Westerners all know the great sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And we would say probably, well, homosexuality, of course, you know, that thing that we don't personally struggle with, that we can point our finger to others and go, yes, there it is. Well, he pointed out that uh, to a non-Westerner, that would have been the most laughable thing ever. Because for the non-Westerner, the most obvious sin of Sodom and Gomorrah would have been their lack of hospitality. Interesting thing, too, I tell you, is that they actually back that up with Scripture. So I was like, oh, scripturally. And so then they took, took me to Ezekiel 1648 and following. Listen to these words and you tell me. As I live, declares the Lord, Sodom, your Israel's sister, and her daughters have not done as you, Israel, and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. First of all, does that situation sound familiar? All right. Let's see what happens. But she did not care for the poor and the needy. Thus, they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Referring here to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, this shook me to my core a bit, you know, to have something so fundamental thrown in your face and realizing that uh, your cultural blinders have very much blinded you to this not small thing in Scripture. And then the Spirit started to really minister to me through His other saints and great gifted teachers and started to challenge these cultural blinders that I'd been wearing and I had no idea where it would end up. And this concept of hospitality really eluded me. Not something we talk a lot about. As a matter of fact, I've shared with some people, I'm speaking on hospitality today and I get the, the funniest response ever. It's like this. Oh. That's great. You know, and I imagine you thought I was going to bring my fine china and some tea up here and maybe some doily laying over this and uh, we were all going to drink high tea together. And unfortunately, when we think of hospitality, this is often what comes to mind, isn't it? Maybe we picture having a pleasant meal with family and friends. Maybe we think of Martha Stewart. Um, maybe we don't. Uh, Maybe we think of the hospitality industry, of hotels and restaurants, which are open to paying customers, um, or even large churches, right, with their hospitality ministries, uh, when they coordinate coffee and they greet visitors and act as ushers and parking lot attendants. But today, our understandings of hospitality really has a minimal moral component. It's not like some great obligation that we feel the burden to want to pursue it's kind of if we have time and you know if the opportunity arises maybe 
uh, if we're so inclined. You know, we've almost relegated it to, to a nice extra. But we fail to see it as a spiritual obligation and certainly not as a dynamic expression of vibrant Christianity. Well, in the Bible, which is going to be our source for how we should respond to it, uh, God both demonstrates and commands his followers to practice hospitality. Matter of fact, our English word hospitality comes from the Greek word philoxenia. So it's going to be xenia, which is going to be foreigner or stranger, and philo, which uh, would have been reduced from phileo, which is to love. So essentially, uh, morphologically, that term, which is actually what it means, is to show love or care to the stranger or the alien. That's what hospitality actually is. Um, There might be a doily, I don't know. Uh, But it's certainly not crucial. And guess where this most often happens today? Where hospitality to strangers is extended? Where do you think? Wherever there are good paying customers. Well, the next year, a year had passed, and my wife had started to talk about what this might be and even think about realigning our lives. The next year, Doug spoke again, the uh, inevitable indicator of the work of the Spirit of God. Doug McAlpine was speaking at a men's breakfast, and he was speaking again about international students. And simultaneously, I had been doing a study on uh, cultural challenges to the Christian community in uh, the U.S. uh, of America, and particularly the, the plague of individualism. Individualism has to do with all of our worlds and everything we do having to do with me and mine. Not seeing ourselves as a part of a community, responsible for that community, but seeing ourselves as responsible for me. Watch out for number one, don't step in number two. That's the heart of individualism. And I came to see that, that as Christians, in this context, we had come to undervalue something that is sacred, both community and hospitality, something that has always been seen as sacred, that all of a sudden became not of much consequence to us. Christianity wasn't so much about a community in the world, it was about a nuclear family. It was about us rugged individuals. It was about us lone heroes. Funny, we even started to define faithfulness in such things as quiet times. I'm good and I'm faithful to God because I do personal, private, quiet times. And that equals a personal relationship with God. That is a peculiar construction for a people who are individualists at their core. Well, social media hasn't helped much either. Uh, With the coming of Facebook and all the other social media, uh, isolation tended to increase even more. So now we get to be separated from people and image forth that which we want you to think about us. Greater isolation there. Meanwhile, because we're relational beings that were made to be in relationships, our souls thirst for that which God intended for us. And in this culture, it's too easy to become a church filled with strangers and aliens. And yet God has called us to be 
the closest, most intimate family in all the world. God has called us to be a peculiar people amidst this world of isolation, of loneliness, of self-centeredness. He's called us to be the household of God. So what is it that makes this family different from the rest of the world? Is it Sunday service where we stare at the backs of each other's heads as spectators to some preaching and some singing? Which, by the way, I don't reduce it to that. I'm just giving an example. And I'll tell you, I absolutely adore the back of Larry Brackett's head, and I encourage you guys, switch around and check it out sometime. I'm very partial to it. But how much different is that from a sporting event where we all sit and look at the backs of each other's heads and beyond and become spectators? Of course, at a sporting event, we actually talk to each other. How are we to be seen as the peculiar people if there's no distinction in the way we relate to one another? How will they know we are Christians if not by our love for one another, our love for others in such a radical way that it distinguishes us and sets us apart from this culture we live in. Well, this conflict really started to awaken me to how deeply this biblical imperative of hospitality has come to hinder the shalom, the wholeness that God has intended for each and every one of us. I realized that in this isolation, the transformative ministry of the Spirit of God, which, by the way, happens in the context of us, is hindered. And as that's hindered, so is our transformation into Christ's likeness. As that is hindered, so is our answering the call to go into all the world. They're related to one another. And so... Todd and I had begun to, to explore the concept of community. And these were things that, that we started to see and the challenges we started to know were going to be there for all of us to walk this path. And no, no simple path. It's been difficult the whole way. Hard questions, hard conversations. But one of the things I came to see was that not only the investigation of community that Todd and I had engaged in, but also the mission to international students had to do with the one and same deficiency, a lost vision for the biblical imperative of Christian hospitality. And it's funny because we consider international students, and I'm really excited that Spencer Stringer is going to come speak with us, but it's funny that we categorize a foreigner and stranger coming into our place by which we're going to exercise care for it as missions. And do you know why we use the term missions? Because we have no other nomenclature to describe that. So if you're wondering if we've lost the biblical imperative of hospitality, let me remind you the definition of that is exercising care to strangers and aliens. The thing we call missions because we've lost the vision for this concept. And what I want you to see is, and what God has come to show me is, this is actually a, a, a concept that is central from Genesis to Revelation. It's central to the gospel. And we don't even have the nomenclature to identify the very thing that it is as that. 
It's become a deficiency culture-wide. Well, as with many things, uh, this lack of vision of hospitality was merely a fruit that's affecting the inner vitality and the mission of the church here in U.S. America. It's a fruit of a root that is actually self-centeredness. Darn it. Who in the world has time to take care of other people? Way too busy taking care of ourselves. And it's funny because this self-centeredness I don't see it as malicious and calculating. I don't know anybody here that I think is sitting at home going, now how can I get more for me to the exclusion of others? I don't see that happening so much. If it's like me, it's much more insidious. It's much more deceptive. It, it dresses itself up in noble things. Ready? I have to focus on me and mine, on me and my family. And that takes all of my time. By the way, a good calling that God has given to all of us to care for our families. But let me warn you, uh, it would be a sin of omission to allow that good calling to undermine the great calling of the gospel to all the world. In fact, I would be so bold as to say, if you took the calling to family and use that to undermine the call of God to all the world, that would for sure be sin. And so in practice, it's almost as if we've exchanged the gospel for all the people of God in the world for a gospel for me and mine. Well, as I continued on this journey, I came to a work that has uh, very much shaped my understanding uh, by Christine DePaul called Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition. Uh, this Methodist sister in the Lord, the, uh, the Spirit of God has used in great ways to point me to the scriptures that so overwhelmingly attest to this moral imperative of hospitality. I came to see that hospitality was not some minor extra, but is actually central to God's character central to his people, and central to the biblical witness of redemptive history. When you consider Israel, Israel understood themselves first and foremost as strangers and sojourners. Believe me, when you leave in the tent and you move whenever the Spirit of God and his pillar of fire by night and smoke by day moves, you know you're a sojourner and an alien. When you live in the land of Egypt as slaves for another people, it doesn't escape your notice that you are a stranger and an alien. When you're called away from your people, when you're called away from your inheritance to one that God would give to you and to a people that he would establish in a land that he would show you, it doesn't escape your notice that your identity is squarely rooted in being a stranger and a sojourner. This was what it meant to be the people of God. Not only did it mean this historically and socially, it, it, not only historically, but also socially. This was actually part of the law. Listen to Leviticus 19.33. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you 
as the native among you as family. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So to neglect this obviously violates love to God. They're not obeying a command to God. I am the Lord your God. He reminds them. Nor it also violates love for one's neighbor as oneself. So this was central, a central expression of faithfulness to what the law embodied. Deuteronomy 10, 18, listen to this. God shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Do you hear it? The, the cadence? You were aliens. Show love for the alien. God the Father cares and feeds for the alien, the stranger. So if you're his child, guess what? Do as the Father does. You also care for them. So we as the people of God should be peculiarly sensitive and sympathetic to the plight of the stranger and the alien. In fact, I would say more than anybody else we should, and I'll tell you why. Scripture portrays us, first of all, as those who were once strangers and aliens to God and to his people. That's where we began when we were lost. Paul talks about it regularly. You are not a people. You are strangers and aliens. But God, so I want you to hear hospitality being the root of the gospel. But God in his graciousness and his kindness and his mercy through Jesus Christ included you a part of his people. And he made you part of his. He welcomed you in. He exercised hospitality. He saw your need and he moved to act on, on behalf of you and your need. He saw you in your thirst and in your hunger, and in your imprisonment. And he was moved in compassion to act on your behalf, to bring you into his own, to make you part of his. And now, you believers, guess what? Now that you're a part of God's, still you are strangers and aliens in this world. Or are we? The hard question I have to ask myself it's easy to say that because the scripture says it. It's a whole other thing to look within the dark recesses of our hearts and go, am I really? And then the harder question, how so? Well, the rationale in these scriptures is this. Since we can understand by personal experience how it is to be a stranger and alien, and since God has given us an example of how to, how to care for strangers and aliens, and because we're his children, so we should care for the stranger and for the alien. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Well, here's something that was even more revolutionary. I came to find out in the scriptures that hospitality was actually a litmus test to the spirituality of generations. This is the part that will blow your mind. We've already seen this measuring a bit in Sodom. But now I want to point you to Judges 19. You know, Sodom, those were the people that were not of God. They were the wicked ones. But we're going to turn now to Judges 19, and it's a longer story. I'm going to summarize much of it for you, and I'll give a few quotes. It's a tragic story about the people of God. Judges is a story that's tragic about the people of God. And, and the pattern you see in Judges is just this. When the people are desperate, 
and in need and in crisis, they call out to God, and God delivers them through a judge, which was referred to as a savior in that book. He delivers them. And then the moment they're delivered, as soon as comfort returns, as soon as they are filled and they have their ease, by the way, just like Sodom, they forsake the Lord. And every man does what is right in his own eyes. Well, the question that's asked throughout all of Judges is what will happen to the people of God? And the real question is, are they even the people of God? Because they so don't look like it. Yet God is gracious, and that's a, another part of that major message. Well, in the end, the question is made even greater because, you see, there's a story. There's a story about a Levite and his concubine who fled back to her father, and he pursued her in Bethlehem and got her to bring her back. And on his way back to Ephraim, which is where he was from, he stayed in Gabeah of Benjamin instead of Jerusalem. And he said he didn't stay in Jerusalem because at the time it was under pagan control. So any Israelite hears this and they're like, well, yeah, you want to go where there's hospitality, you know, where it's family because they'll take you in and they'll care for you. Otherwise, good luck, you might not even survive. So hospitality was something they depended on. Well, listen to 19, 20, 12 and following. The master said to the servant, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go on as far as Gibeah. So they passed along and went their way, and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah. They expected to be received by their own Israel to care for them, to exercise hospitality. When they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city. By the way, this is how hospitality is is carried out in the city gate or in the city square you would come and wait and that's where business and all things were done and that's where people would see and they would see you're a visitor and then so there was a common place that you would come and then you would invite them in come with me we'll take care of you and it was supposed to be a great honor a great privilege to bring them in under your roof and care for them and so here they went they went down they sat in the open city of the square for no one took them into his house to spend the night. So here they are. Everybody's gone home. And they're all alone in the city square. No one has taken them in. And the non-Westerner and the Israelite, y'all didn't hear it just now, but it would have happened. Oh, they left them there. Then behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim. So this wasn't a Benjamite. He was actually from Ephraim, the same place this man was from. Huh. And he was staying in Gibeah, but the men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? He said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem in Judah, but I'm now going to my house, and no man will take me into his house. Do you see how it's making it very clear that this is the case? The old man said, peace to you. Only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. 
Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? They're like, oh, you can't stay here. You've got to come in with us. Same thing. Except this isn't in a pagan city, by the way. This is amidst the people of God. Well, I'll tell you, this might be one of the most uh, horrific stories in all of Scripture, and I'm not going to read it. But I will tell you this. The men of that city seek to sleep with that tra those travelers, those men. The Benjamites do. And the host does as, by the way, would be the right thing to do. He offers his daughter and the concubine instead because hospitality is no small thing. They rape the concubine until morning and she dies. And then the man takes and cuts her into 12 pieces and sends her out into all the territories of Israel. And this is what they said. And this is where Judges leaves you with the estate of Israel. Nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. A story of the failings of God's people in hospitality. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. What if hospitality was the litmus test for general spirituality for the church in U.S. America? How do you think we might measure it? We certainly don't do those things that the Benjamites do. Or is what they did nothing at all? We fail to see that doing nothing at all and having no concern for the stranger and alien was merely an indicator of how far they really had fallen from the calling. Let's consider Jesus. Dependent on hospitality most of his life, he had no place to lay his head. And yet he would come and be a host in his words, in his actions. People turned to him and they found welcome. They found rest. And they found promise of reception into his kingdom. He urged his human host to open up their meals to more than just family and friends, but to the poor, to the sick to those who could not possibly repay them for their kindness. And he promised that welcoming the stranger and caring for him is the exact same as welcoming the Son of Man and caring for him. Interestingly, Jesus never mentions private quiet times as an act of kindness to Jesus. funny we dubbed that a personal relationship with Jesus and not the thing he dubbed Paul argued uh, urged fellow Christians to welcome one another as Christ had welcomed them he challenged the early believers to pursue hospitality not to passively respond to it but to pursue it 
Matter of fact, hospitality was a qualification for leadership, for elders, for deacons. In our U.S. American culture, that one's often uh, diminished to husband of one wife or addicted to much wine. But I can tell you in the list, they stand out all the same. The writer of Hebrews encourages them to practice hospitality to strangers because just as with Abraham and Sarah, they might be entertaining angels. See, Christian believers were to regard hospitality to strangers as a fundamental expression of the gospel itself. I've got so much here, I can't possibly cover it on the history of this as it goes through the ages. It is utterly astounding. The centrality and the place of primacy that it holds within our tradition and within the biblical witness. Jesus says this in Matthew 25, and I want you to listen clearly about the standard in which he's using here as he judges the believer and the non-believer. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, Jesus says, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? When did we see you a stranger or naked? When did we see you sick or in prison? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. By the way, that goes on to reverse all that to the non-believer. And he says, to the extent which you didn't do it to any of them, you didn't do it to me. Depart from me. I never knew you. These will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I'm not trying to build for you the to-dos that get you to heaven. Christ alone is the answer to that conundrum. But an acceptance of Christ is an acceptance of his ways. It's an acceptance of his, of his judgments. It's acceptance of him as our Lord, as the one we follow. This became the litmus test still in the New Testament. Oh, there's so much that goes on and on with a rich heritage we have. But the question has to come to this. Whatever happened? If this was such a central place, how did it come to disappear altogether? And that is a fascinating, ironic story. See, the church's concern for the stranger led them to start hospitals and hospices and hostels. More anonymous, distanced ways of caring for the stranger or the sick or the needy. But it was such an issue for them. It was such a big deal that they felt compelled to. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. However, those were funded by anonymous benefactors. 
those who wanted to pay for that to happen. And it removed the personal, face-to-face, dignity-affirming aspect of hospitality. And then we came to have a monetized culture where we pay for others to do the things we ourselves don't feel like doing. And hospitality is a personal, face-to-face, gracious welcome began to disappear in the Middle Ages. Hospitality was reserved as something you do with someone of equal or greater stature. So it wasn't about the stranger or alien. It, wasn't, it was about trying to move up the social ladder. Also, the nature of the household changed. No longer was it more extensive, including networks of relationships and communities. Now, all of a sudden, it was a nuclear household, maybe even a broken household. It became smaller and smaller and more and more insulated. Also, the structures of the church and the state. The church wasn't the primary caregiver of those who were in need. Who was it? The state. So these are real challenges that have come to face us institutional challenges that have come to face us. So there's a very reasonable reason why this has come to fall off the face of the earth and, and, and we've completely lost this vision of what hospitality is. There's too many things moving in the direction to cause us to. And I would say this too. It might very well be a part of the ploy of Satan. And the reason I would say that is this. Hospitality was the primary conduit through which the gospel reach people who were lost. It was the incarnational embodiment of what the gospel was. Listen to this gospel real quick. You, while you were strangers and aliens, sick, needy, imprisoned, thirsty, languishing, while in this estate, God moved on your behalf. And he came for you away. He became for you food. He came, became for you a quenching of your eternal thirst. And he made you a people. And he brought you into a home, his very own household. And he cared for you through his body, through the spirit and dwelt body of the church. He cared for you. He made you to belong. And he brought you into that which your soul longed for, the shalom, the wholeness of life, even amidst a broken world. And he did it so that you could be an ambassador and do the same with others as he had done for you. And he gives you the promise that in the end, in the very end, he will raise you up again and you will dwell with him forever and all of his people. And the waters of the, the living waters will flow and you will drink freely and you will thirst no more. And the trees of life will, will bear fruit every season of the year and you'll never hunger again. And there'll be no more weeping or crying or tears. See, the, the gospel was a message of the hospitality of God to a despisable, fallen people. That is the gospel. So what better way to incarnate that gospel than to be that people to the lost, to the stranger, to the alien? 
well. These convictions came to reside deeply within my heart and my family, and the scripture was very much unavoidable, as was the rich heritage of the work of the Spirit through the ages of the church. And so we did the only thing we could do. We considered how we might be repentant. We considered what stumbling blocks might exist there. And some of the things we found were this. First of all, the lust of the flesh. We're tired. We're weary. We don't want to deal with guests. We don't want to deal with anybody. We're just barely making it, right? But then we decided this. But you know what? We got to eat. Why don't we eat with other people? And you know what? This, the space we say we keep for all these reasons, our Facebook reasons of why we keep that space because of how our family's really going to be, we don't hardly ever do that anyway. Why don't we just let that idol go too? Okay. And you know what? How about instead of us, we just make people a priority in our lives? Like, that's kind of radical. How, how about that? Now, this is my testimony. It's the testimony of God in a, in, a, in a guy whose heart's dark. I'm just being honest with you. But, you know, when you start thinking about it, it's, a lot of it's really ridiculous. It's like, well, yeah. And then we figured there's the pride of life, too, you know, because here's what it is. Here's what it is. It's that I really want you to think my home life is so awesome. I mean, our house is perfect. Our kids are perfect. Our meals are perfect. Everything's perfect. Nothing's out of control. It's all great. Right? And I need to keep up that illusion. And so when my life is messy, yeah, let's not have anybody over right now. Things are crazy. What? And so we went ahead and decided, you know what? That's the pride of life. We're just going to let that go too. And you know what? If the house is the wreck, and if my kids are nutbags, and if we're at our wits end, you know what? That's just going to be where we are. And you know what we're going to do? We're just going to live the gospel and go, hey, you know what? Life's a mess. We're a mess. Praise God for Jesus who covers a multitude of sins because it's the only hope any of us got. And you know what we came to find out? People that came into that all of a sudden found people they related to. <laughs> they wanted to come over all the time. Let go of the Facebook image, guys. It's an idol. Is destructive. What about time? Oh my goodness. What about our kids? I mean, what if they're individually not developed to all they can be? I mean, goodness, they got to be in five different things. And I mean, what are we going to do? Their whole livelihood depends on our lives being fully invested to them as the center of the universe. And then we stopped and thought, what? That actually sounds like the fall of rampant self-centeredness of me being the middle of the world. And I'm going to make my kids that? I might be their greatest stumbling block at that point. You see the lies? It's crazy. And I thought, you know what? It might be healthier for my kids to know they're not the center of the world and to understand themselves as a part of a community where they're not at the tip of importance for all of the world. How about that? That's crazy. That's a, that's a novel idea. 
and we still got to eat anyway. We might as well do it with other people at the table. Money. Money's a tough one because we record all of our stuff. I happen to know we spent almost $7,000 this year on, on hosting guests at our table. Kind of crazy. It was so crazy, I told my wife, hey, we really need to watch that this next year. Oh, yeah, I just, just in case you thought I was the hero. Sick, dark, but the gospel shining light into that, and that's why I share it with you freely. God's the hero. Christ is the hero. The Spirit of God and His redemption, that's the hero. Make no mistakes. But you know what? It might be a vital part of stewardship. The things we have aren't ours anyway, are they? They're God, and what are they for? They're for His kingdom, not mine. But we came to see hospitality wasn't just these decisions of repentance. It was a skill, a skill to be learned. And I'll tell you too, while we thought we were givers of hospitality, we came to see we were the greatest beneficiaries of it. When I see Noah wrestle around with Russ Miller or Todd Knapp or oh, so many people now, people he admires, I realize he knows those people because they sat at my table. When I see Owen pray for people in this church that he calls family, they're the people that sat at my table models for him to follow my son Luke because of relationships around our table in a difficult time in his life have people such as Taylor McAlpine or Jonathan Top that he admires and that might be the only thing holding him in right now other families who have been part of his life that's holding him in right now at a difficult time, what I realized was this. When God had given us the courage to lose our lives and to forsake those idols, he came to provide the very thing we thought we were going to by our own hands. His ways were greater than we could have ever imagined. Because I can tell you the effect, the things that my children are getting are things that Jill and I could not possibly provide in and of ourselves. Jill started to have a more intimate relationship with those at her work. Through that, she started eating lunch with coworkers. She didn't want to. She wanted to relax. She came to eat lunch with Ruah, the wife of the imam of the Muslim mosque here in town. And Samer and Ruah and his family came to our house, and they had a meal. And they showed us what hospitality was because we didn't know. They brought hundreds of dollars worth of gifts to our table because of what an honor it is to be in someone's home and to share a meal. They outdid us in hospitality, to be honest. And we learned from them. But you know what else we got to do? We got to share the gospel to him and his entire family from Genesis to Revelation. And we started a relationship. And he and I still meet for lunch. And you know what we talk about? The scriptures. That's what we want to talk about. And that's what we talk about. Crazy, I didn't know what was going to happen, but eventually called her in my small group. I had taken a step towards small group, called her in my small group, gave a TED talk. And a couple Muslim students came up to him and were interested to talk and called her, brought him into our small group. 
him and his friend Ali, Abed and Ali. And they became our friends in our small group. And we came to have a relationship with them. And we meet with them regularly now. And they're our friends. And he's brought others, such as Changa from China. And he's brought his cousin Fahad. And they've become a part of our community. In fact, we got to share the gospel with them too, from Genesis to Revelation. To which he responded, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Matter of fact, I want to read the text that he sent. Because it blew me away. He said this. He titled it Speechless, and this is what he said. You guys are more than just a generous family in all aspects. You are a family where a person feels they belong from the first meeting. God bless you for your time and effort that you have taken to make this night a special night for me on my 33rd birthday. We had a birthday party. In simple words, it's an unforgettable night. Calder responded to me in text that night, this is what God made us for. To which I would say, it is indeed. And in the midst of giving life away, you come to find the shalom, the wholeness that God has for you in this life. And so I want to challenge you to a couple things. One, move towards community. Hospitality is not just a skill, it's a practice and it's a commitment and it's a value. Move towards the community of this church. Open up your lives. We are going to be revamping and opening up small groups for more opportunities. You need to start praying about them right now. You need to start making room in your life right now. There's an assimilation team meeting right now on how to better bring help members to become fully functioning, attenders to become more engaged, and visitors to become a part. And there are great opportunities on the horizon even now. Begin praying for them, guys. And you know what? The most significant, one of the most significant movements of God in the history of the world is happening right now. And our missions committee is leading us in faithfulness there pray real hard. If you have an international student, don't keep them to yourself, you hogs. Grab these people and bring them in with you. Extend the influence of the church. Bring them into those extensive relationships that these others might also have the opportunity and the courage to commit to wanting to follow that path. The opportunities are great and they stand right now for us to be repentant. Consider the idols, consider the stumbling blocks, consider the opportunities, and prayerfully consider boldly following Christ and the call that he's given us for the world. Boldly consider a radical obedience that will distinguish you from all the people of the world to the praise of the glory of God. Amen. You're dismissed.